President Barnes and Dean Lapsley, thank you for this opportunity to speak tonight. It is a privilege to stand before my colleagues and to welcome once again new colleagues, to welcome again new students, and to see uh, faces of returning students. It's great to be with you. And Sean, awesome. <laughs> he learned it all from me. <laughs> Uh, just by way of personal introduction, I just have to say, if you haven't figured it out by now or might not, I've only known a certain person on this faculty for about 40 years, and um, kind sir, where is he? I am a raging extrovert, <laughs> which will make sense to those who were just at the faculty dinner when I was excluded from that esteemed list. What in the world am I doing here? What is my purpose in life? Who am I called to be? Why have I been put on this earth? Wait a minute. How did I get to seminary? Oh. Some of you have come to seminary completely locked on to the answer to this question. Pastor, educator, advocate for the poor, social worker, clinician, chaplain. More of you are not so sure. And I know this because I read your admissions applications. <laughs> and most of us have been where you're sitting right now. Well, seminary will not immediately clarify these things for you, I'm sorry to say. People who never for a moment considered the life of a pastor will fall in love with the church when they're in field education. People who never for a moment considered advanced graduate work will discover a passion for a discipline that requires further study. People who never thought they would get within shouting distance of a pulpit will discover that deep inside there is a preacher whose voice is yearning to get out. Seminary will not immediately clarify your vocational question. Tonight, I propose to you that no matter the specific vocational path you follow, it is going to include your voice. The path you follow is going to include your voice, the audible, physical, full-body instrument, fleshy, speaking voice. In fact, I will go further than that and suggest that Christian vocation begins with voice. And that no matter the particular exercise of your vocation, the voice, your speaking voice, is integral and essential to whatever that path is. Tonight, we will talk first about vocation, what it means, then a bit about voice, and then uh, why it is so central to vocation. And finally, we will flesh out, so to speak, uh, the so what. What does it mean for us here and now that the voice is so central to vocation? Now, so that you do not remain distracted by a couple of big unanswered questions, right at the beginning, just a couple qualifications. One, not everyone speaks with an audible speaking voice, as is very clear tonight. Members of the deaf community do not hear with the apparatus of the ear, at least not enough to make sense of the audible speaking voice. And so, therefore, they typically do not speak 
with that voice. Sign language, however, is a highly physical, full-body, fleshy activity, as you can see tonight and as you will come to know when you're in theology classes with one of our PhD students. Two, I am not talking about that other voice. That's the voice in your head. That's the voice that's talking to me right now back here as I'm wondering if I'm going the right direction already. That's the metaphorical voice. The metaphorical voice has to do with such things as one's perspective, one's view of the world, one's interpretation of biblical texts or one's theological view. I'm not talking about that metaphorical voice, the other voice. I am talking about the speaking voice, the literal voice you are hearing from my body right now. Since the dominant mode of communication in our context is with the audible speaking voice, and, you know, since I teach speech, that is my focus. <laughs> there is very little that will be said here, however, that does not apply to communication by other means, for example, American Sign Language. First, then, vocation. We touched down only very briefly on historical understandings of vocation. In the Middle Ages, vocation meant to be on the way to becoming a monk. So vocation basically equaled the monastic life. Forward to Martin Luther, I told you it would be brief. Forward to Martin Luther, who was, in fact, a very good monk. Perhaps he was too good of a monk. He was so good as a monk that he was never sure of his salvation, pestered his confessor by constantly remembering more sins that he had committed. He was driving himself and his confessor crazy. He came to conclude that our salvation is not secured by what we do. Our salvation is not even secured by how thoroughly we confess, but purely on the grace of God. Salvation is secured not by works, not by pursuing the religious life or committing to the monastic life, but by the grace of God alone in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. This means we are free to live our lives, free to live out the greatest commandment to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves, right where we are. Shepherds, therefore, glorify God by herding sheep, and shoemakers glorify God by making shoes. So how is it that herding sheep and making shoes become a vocation? When in it and through it and by it, one loves the Lord God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loves one's neighbor as oneself. Now every Christian has a vocation, not just the religious or the monastic kind. A modern voice reflecting on vocation without even using the word is Simone Weil. Weil reflects on vocation in a lovely little essay for students written in 1942. She connects the attention needed to learn to the attention needed to pray. Attention to an aspect of learning, a math problem or a reading assignment, prepares and deepens one's ability to attend to God in prayer. It does not matter if such attention accomplishes success in the school assignment. In fact, failure may prove to be even more successful. 
because to accomplish the assignment correctly requires even greater attention. The lower kind of attention involved in a school assignment fosters and deepens one's ability to attend to God in prayer so that when such time comes that one needs God in prayer, the ability to attend to God is a deep well upon which one may draw. Developing the ability to attend to God in prayer, therefore, becomes the vocation for the student. The vocational goal of students' work is not to achieve good grades. It's not to win honors or to be noted for one's innate academic abilities or to be singled out as smarter than others. Essentially, the vocation of the student is to attend to God and to love God. Fast forward again, we come to the modern era. Now, associating vocation with a job is problematic. One's job is no longer uh, so obviously integral to community life. Yes, someone has to monitor the machine that tightens a screw on the hinge of the door of the car as it passes by, and someone has to monitor the boiler, and someone has to sit going blind looking at spreadsheets on a computer screen. But with so much work having become mechanized and isolating and isolated and invisible and with some not able to find work at all, what is the connection of a job or work to vocation? It is more reasonable today to connect vocation simply with who we are in the world as Christians. No matter whether your job or whether you have one, no matter if your work is religious, vocation is better defined as intentionally living your life, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Getting up every morning and deciding afresh today to love God and love neighbor, and that will spill over into everything you do. In his book, Visions of Vocation, Stephen Garber connects vocation to covenant, and particularly God's covenant with God's people to be their God. Garber maintains that there are three dimensions to this covenant, relationship, revelation, and responsibility. Relationship and responsibility are mediated by revelation. That is, we come into relationship with God through revelation, and we come to know our understanding about our responsibility through revelation. So revelation makes relationship possible and informs us as to our responsibility. God reveals God's self to God's people through parted waters and manna and burning bush and tablets. God reveals God's self to God's people through prophets, major and minor, and apparently unremarkable people like Esther and young David and unnamed players like Shunanite woman and Samaritan woman and woman with the issue of blood. God reveals God's self to God's people, thereby establishing relationship. And no sooner are we in relationship with God than we are given responsibility. Knowing what you know now by being in relationship with God, knowing now who this God is, what are you going to do 
Go and multiply. Obey the commandments. Collect and eat only what you need for today. Go tell all that you have seen and heard. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God reveals God's self in the person of Jesus Christ and through the death and resurrection of Christ breaks down every possible barrier to relationship. And then once in relationship, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is essentially our vocation to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love neighbor as ourselves. This is how I am framing vocation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. To know is to love. In God's economy, to love is to know. Now that you know what you know about the world, it's not perfect, what will you do? Now that you know what you know about yourself, how will you love? Now that you know what you know about your community, your neighbor, your classmate, your teacher, how are you going to love? In God's economy, to know is to love. There is no caveat. There's no escape clause. There's no fine print. There's no escape here for difference of opinion or family origin or global origin or age or race or gender or ethnicity or denominal affiliation or worship style or hairstyle. <laughs> what has this to do with voice? Scripture is replete with stories of people called to use the voice in service to the love of God and the love for God. God reveals God's self, establishing relationship with the beloved, and some sort of responsibility is created for the one called. I have always tied the voice to vocation at the level of biblical witness and theological persuasion. Moses is called to speak to Pharaoh, to speak to power, even though Aaron is the eloquent one. Isaiah uh, has unclean lips, so God purifies his lips with burning coals. Jeremiah is too young, but God promises to put words in his mouth. Esther knows that speaking truth to power might result in her death, but she actually believes she is called to, such a, to the kingdom at such a time as this. Mary is called to bear the word into the world and voices her obedience. Let it be to me according to your will. A nameless, outcast woman at a well is compelled to go tell all she has seen and heard. Paul tells us that God chose to save those who believe through the foolishness of our preaching. But is there something even more intrinsic, even inescapable, of the connection of vocation to voice? Is there something about the voice that is so integral to being human that one does not have to be a Moses or a prophet or a preacher to be called to use the voice? I believe the answer is yes. In the broader discipline of philosophy, phenomenology is the study of phenomena. <laughs> you all passed the SATs, right? <laughs> 
It is a study of conscious experience from a first-person point of view. Phenomenology tries to get at the most fundamental uh, initial level of human experience. It is the study of structures of experience and so has in large measure relied upon the senses, hearing, touch, seeing, smelling. It is a descriptive science. Is there something so elemental, so fundamental about voice that it is integral to being human? The phenomenologist Jean-Louis Chrétien says that there is. And while tonight does not permit going into detail on his thought, what follows is informed by his work. Many will say that the first thing God does in Genesis is to create. God creates the world. In fact, the first thing God does in Genesis is to speak. In the beginning was a formless void, then God said, let there be light. God spoke. God voiced the world into creation. In the first account of creation, God gave humankind dominion over the earth and over the fish of the sea and the animals and plants and every creeping thing. In the second creation account, God forms animals from the earth and brings the animals to the human being and gives the human the privilege and responsibility to name the animals. The first creation account seems to emphasize the dominion of humanity over creation. The second creation account, through naming the animals, seems to emphasize humanity's domestic connectedness and relationship with the creation. We have this play between dominion and domesticity. Naming reflects values and character. Naming reflects hope for who we want this child or animal to be. Naming is often a way of honoring another. Anyone who has named an animal knows there is a process of value and love that goes with it, even the silly names. My dog is named Banana. <laughs> but she's named after the older sister, Anna, because we would not let the younger sister name the dog Anna. See, she's just gone to college. She'll be back. So the dog is named Banana, in honor of older sister Anna. Dominion and domestic intimacy. Dominion is not to bully or destroy. Dominion is responsibility to care for. In naming the animals, in voicing the animal's name, the human being is called to know and respect and be in relationship with the animal beings. Dominion will be respecting who those animal beings are. And unless anyone doubts that, Turn to someone who has been confronted by a mother bear, separated from her cubs, and ask just how much dominion we have over the bear if we're not holding a gun. Not a whole lot. So even when we have the power to do so, dominion has to do with respecting another. So this first call to the human is to be in relationship, to know, to care, to take care of, to respect and be responsible for creation and all living creatures. And the first thing God does in revealing this responsibility is to call human into relationship by asking the human to name, 
to speak aloud the names of living creatures. God even seems to be enjoying this call, bringing to the human each animal to see what the human will call it. Think of the joy, handing the new creature over to the human and saying, what will you name it? And human says, hedgehog. So joyful. The first thing human being is called to do is to name, to speak names, which is to create a network of relationships. The very first words spoken by the human being, therefore, are a response. Human does not initiate voice out of thin air. First words of humans are not the first voiced words. First voiced words are from God and are a call to the human being to respond. This means we cannot respond to that call unless we first listen to the call and hear the call. The first call is not to organize or to build or to think or to pursue ordination processes, or to go forth and multiply, or to disagree, or to silence another. The first call, which requires listening in order to hear, is to be in relationship using voices to name. Your temptation from your earliest days in seminary will be to name each other. You will learn first names and family names. You will learn some denominational names, place of origin names. But you will find an almost irresistible urge to use other names. Conservative, progressive, liberal, evangelical, feminist, heretic. Californian, and more. In Genesis, naming is grounded in listening to a call. That call is an act of hospitality. It is an act of welcome to this world. It is an act of nurture. Here is your name, and I will see to your well-being, because that's my call. In Genesis, naming is a hospitable act of love. So maybe the naming that needs to be done in seminary is not theological categorizing, but relational loving. Sibling, sister, brother, theological cousin, aunt, <laughs> uncle, friend, friend. This will not be easy. If you have ever in your life been in even one relationship of any kind, <laughs> as a child or a sibling or a partner or a friend, if you've, had, if you've been in one relationship, you know there is always an element of tension and conflict, right? Well, Princeton is not a utopian conflict-free zone. There is plenty of tension and conflict to get in the way of hospitable and nurturing love. 
There was fear and anxiety that I am not good enough or smart enough or called enough. There was anxiety that the right people may not notice me, those people who could get me into a graduate program. There was fear that my faith is simply not strong enough to sustain this journey. There was anxiety that no one in the world sees the world or understands faith the way I do. The fear of being alone. I'm pretty sure no one of us can be the arbiter about what another sees from their point of view. My pastor used to say that one's point of view depends on one's point of viewing. Now, rhetorically speaking, I suppose that's a tautology. It's rather obvious, but it's rather profound as well. No one of us can stand where another stands. No one of us can see what another sees. No one of us can know all the history that brings another to who they are and where they are and what they believe and how they feel and what they think today. We cannot know. The call to be human is first a call to use our voices as a hospitable act of love. But our learning and growing is fed first by listening. Listening to another giving another the space to voice, which is another's opportunity to exercise relationship and responsibility. We are called to listen to each other, to nurture each other, encourage each other. In fact, the first responsibility of the call to be in relationship is to listen. And the call to speak is the first call to speak in the context of that listening speak in relationship to another. What does this mean for us gathered here on this campus? It means that your humanity is integrally bound up with your audible, physical, full-body instrument, fleshy speaking voice. It means that hospitality is not a one-way street here. It is not the case that it is the responsibility of the seminary to extend, to extend hospitality to you and for you to passively receive it. But that in your humanity, in the way you relate to others, in your words and how you use your voice, you are called to be hospitable to one another, including seminary employees and especially the staff who make this place work. It means that the connection of voice to vocation is not just about the words we speak or learning new words to speak, but that the audible, physical, full-body instrument, fleshy speaking voice merits the same kind of attention and nurture as does the mind, the spirit, the faith, the metaphorical voice, the new skill set. It means that no matter what form of ministry your work takes when you leave this place, your speaking voice is integral to that work and to that call. It means that while we are here together, students, staff, administration, faculty, while we are all here together, our speaking voices and how we exercise our voices is integral to our calling. Even more? our voices and the exercise of our voices are fundamental to our humanity. So let us employ our voices in hospitable acts 
of love. After all, it's only human. <laughs>